Well, it's been four weeks since we were in our series in First and Second Thessalonians. Had our holiday season, and a lot of things have happened since then. I want to particularly thank uh, Ted Alston for starting off our year so well with calling us to recover our first love and a, a Christ-centered approach to our life and making sure we remove the, the distractions. And as I was thinking about thankfulness, I really thought I should say something about Roberta Ryerson as well. Um, she used to work in art gallery and museum with my mom, and she was actually uh, the individual that said that I should, there was this girl I should date. Um, her name was Mary Ellen Holmes. And of course, my mom, of course, got on that. And I'm your typical, I was your typical young man that if your mom tells you to do it, uh, that's like the death now because she's trying to control too much at this point of your life. But eventually, uh, the Lord's will run, uh, you know, worked out there. And uh, here we are many years later together. So uh, Roberta's now with the Lord, but she had a, a part in her life. She was an instrument of God, really, in uh, directing uh, the path of our life, and that's just the way that, that God uh, tends to work. Um, I was also thinking this morning as we were singing, as the choir sang, um, how valuable the songs that we sing, the doctrine that's presented, how valuable it is. And as we talk about our topic today, you probably want to go back to these songs and sing them to the Lord yourself to uh, rehearse what you know to be true about God. As we enter a new year, uh, a year where much of the world seems crazy, and we're part of that crazy world, um, to focus our minds and hearts on the Lord the way we should is really, really important. So four weeks ago, we were finishing out chapter one of Second Thessalonians, and we are talking about suffering for the coming kingdom. Uh, you recall that this church in Thessalonica was persecuted from the start, and so, Paul is encouraging them in their suffering, and he talks about the value of that suffering for the coming kingdom. First, that it shows the worth of God's kingdom. Uh, what we're willing to suffer for really is kind of an index of, of the value of something, and knowing that we belong to that kingdom makes us willing to uh, take up our cross and follow the Lord, whatever that might cost us. It also, the suffering for the coming kingdom vindicates God's wrath on his enemies, and that wrath uh, is coming, and indeed the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness uh, throughout history, but it's going to culminate um, as God pours that out and makes everything right again. And then finally, this suffering for the coming kingdom reveals the glory of the Lord because that shining splendor of God is actually going to shine out through us as we are revealed to be sons and daughters of God that He has transformed. And so, it's, it's very obvious from the verses that precede the ones we look at today, and remember, Paul didn't write in chapters. It's a letter like you would write. Uh, this was just the next thing in the letter. There wasn't four weeks in between uh, before he took up the next topic. But, you know, God uses times of suffering uh, in our lives, you know, for good, and we are confident in that. We, we know that He is with us all the days. 
There are sensitive seasons, and often there are just dramatic changes in our lives. Um, many of you came to know Christ because of a period of suffering where your eyes are open to your immortality and your own need for the Lord. But, but times of suffering are also uh, times that we're vulnerable, vulnerable to temptation, to discouragement, uh, to lies of the enemy. And so Paul is going to shift attention now, um, not just to the value of the suffering, but to, to one of the threats to the believers there in Thessalonica uh, through false teaching that, that, that kind of piggybacked on their suffering and used it in a way that was not helpful to them. So, we come to verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2 with these words, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, he's going to go on and talk further about this topic. There's too much to cover in, in one morning, so we're going to look at this first part of this passage this morning at countering end times anxiety. Countering end times anxiety. We see from this passage first, in verse 1, the comforting reality of Christ coming. He's actually tapping back into the first letter that he wrote to them. We'll look at that, the comforting reality of Christ coming. Second, the deceptive cause of anxiety. We see that in verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. And then finally, in the second part of verse 3 through verse 5, the divinely established timing of the day of the Lord. So, we want to counter the anxiety that often surrounds events that remind people that the world is on a collision course with the end, that, that God indeed is going to wrap things up. And the tendency is for this to unsettle people, uh, for them to become obsessed with this or worried about it uh, in a way that's not actually conducive to the gospel and to our spreading of it and our displaying of it. So, first consider with me the way Paul begins this, the comforting reality of Christ coming. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers, in the original text, we ask you, or we beseech you, we exhort you, we're coming alongside you, that comes first. So, we ask you, brothers, we beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, because of this reality, we are coming to you with this exhortation. Paul and his companions are coming alongside his readers to remind them before he even gets into man of the lawlessness and the rebellion and all of that, to remind them the comfort the return of Christ should bring to the hearts of those who belong to Him. 
And you've actually seen that kind of emphasis in uh, the songs that we've sung uh, this morning and the songs that the choir has presented to us, their testimony to us, to focus on Christ and, and the comfort of His, of His coming to gather His people. This verse essentially summarizes what Paul already wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians 5, 13 through 18. I'm not going to read that whole passage, but I will remind you of a few of those verses. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, Paul wrote, For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's talking about this parousia, the coming, the presence of the Lord in his royal visit. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He sums that up in our text this morning with our gathering to him. Okay? And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he says this, because this is the purpose of what he was writing, therefore encourage one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. At the time that Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonian Christians, and it wasn't that long before he wrote the second, they were worried that their fellow church members who had died were going to miss out somehow on the blessing of Christ's return. It's hard for us to say goodbye to our brothers and sisters in Christ when they pass on, but Paul wants us to know they're not going to miss out on this most important event uh, not at all. They would be raised from the dead first, and then the living believers would join them and together meet the Lord in the air. God, if you belong to God, He's not going to lose you in the dust of the earth. Death can't break the bond. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ, nor from the way He's going to round out the age. The coming of the Lord is His presence. It was used of royal visits in person from someone who had great power and authority. They would roll out the proverbial red carpet and, and welcome the dignitary. Well, there's a King of kings and Lord of lords who is going to come and make His visit and make His claim the ultimate royal visit. His coming and our being gathered to Him are described in this text as one event. So His coming and our being gathered together with Him, we need, we need to hold those together. We learn in the following verses that this time, the anxiety among some members of the church at Thessalonica had to do with false teaching that had wormed its way into the community. And that was that the day of the Lord was at hand, meaning that it had already come. It was in, in process. Uh, and the implication is that, that the suffering, what they're going through, was uh, part of that day of the Lord. And we'll get to that a little later. Before Paul gets down to the doctrinal error on which their fears are based, he introduces the topic with this reminder of the comforting reality of the Lord's return. So we remember that from the beginning, believers in Thessalonica experienced great pressure, great affliction from the enemies of Christ. It wasn't a sort of easy believism where it was just an easy thing to follow the Lord. It was going to cost them, and it did. You remember the missionaries were driven out of Thessalonica. It would be easy to assume that the troubles that had broken upon them 
were end time calamities. This happens throughout history. You read history and people think it's the end of the world whenever there's a, a great time of trouble. And there were those who had capitalized on this vulnerability among these relatively new believers. Whenever things are topsy-turvy in our world, there are always those who will use such turmoil to unsettle even believers because they know that the end of the age will be characterized by such mayhem. And so it's, it's not uncommon when things go a little crazy uh, for conversations in our own lobby to be about, you know, oh, you know, I wonder, you know, maybe the Antichrist is going to show up next week. Um, and in kind of a, a fretfulness and a, and a worried things, or we see things lining up and we start getting worried about it. But we need to remember that we who belong to the Lord are safe and secure in Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer. And when He comes, it will not be to pour out wrath on us, but to rescue us and gather us to him. Um, it doesn't commend the gospel well for believers to be hang, ring, hand ringers and fretful people. It just does not. It, unbelievers can fret. They ought to. But believers who are safe in the Lord, believers who understand that these things must happen, believers who understand that, that God has declared these things will happen, ought to be the first people to be, and, and the, the obvious people that are calm about it, that, that understand. You know, it's, it's kind of like the difference between somebody who's never been on the battlefield before and somebody who has. That you want, when you're going through a tough time, you want some kind of seasoned veteran who, who knows how these things go. It settles our heart. Well, we haven't been through all the end times, and there's lots of things that, that people suffer that, you know, in our own time we suffer, and they can be very disconcerting. But if we know the Lord, and we know the Lord knows us, we ought to be the calm people in the room. We ought to be the settled people in the room. We ought to pray and not faint. We ought to pray and not worry. Um, we are reliant on the Lord. So, so the way Paul begins his comments here reminds us that when we think about the end of the age and the events that will be part of it, our chief focus needs to be Christ Jesus himself. Seeing him face to face is what we eagerly anticipate and is what gives our hearts comfort, whatever difficult circumstances are around us. And we get little doses of this, do we not? When we go through particularly difficult times, um, there are times when the Lord just reveals himself to us and his presence to us in a way that's extraordinary. And, and it is so calming to know that the Lord has his eye on you and that the Lord knows you by name and that the Lord is with you in the battle. And it's especially calming when he, he, in his grace, actually gives you that feeling. Sometimes we know it up here and we have to hold on to that. Other times God is gracious to actually just like flood our heart with that sense of security and safety. And I tell you, it makes you bold as lion. It, it makes you... Uh, strong in the midst of what could be circumstances that destroy you. 
trouble should always turn our hearts toward the Lord. And this is not so difficult a thing because we are made in the image of God. And it's amazing how often instinctively when there's trouble, we turn to the Lord. We just saw the most amazing evidence of this. Despite all the efforts to remove prayer from everywhere, despite all the efforts to pretend like God doesn't exist, take one NFL player who, you know, Damar Hamlin, who, who has a heart attack right on the field, essentially dies on the field, is resuscitated, and look at all the prayer. There's not one atheist in all the world that could stop it. Because down deep, we know that when we get beyond our depth, when, we get, when things go out of our control, we have to turn to someone who is in control. And I just praise the Lord. You know, if you're worried that all the, you know, the secularists and the atheists and, you know, the deconstructionists and all are just going to take over everything, they don't have a prayer, <laughs> literally. <laughs> right? We do. God is not threatened. He sits in the heavens and laughs like one instant, and he can set the whole world on their knees. And we're looking forward to seeing what else the Lord will do. But it's, it was just amazing. It was the most stunning end to uh, binging on football of any uh, end of the year uh, I've ever experienced. You know, really turning, turning to the Lord that way. So... Let me ask you, what events and circumstances in the world, sometimes they're not just what's going on personally, but you you listen to the news or whatever else, they tend to unsettle your heart. What are those things? You know, sometimes it's just good to call it out. And, And then how can you make it your default practice? Like this is standard operating procedure. How can you make it default practice to turn from the turmoil to eager expectation of the Lord's return and the comfort of being gathered to him. When you think, see things get more crazy, let it turn your heart to love the Lord more and thank him more for the fact that he's rescued you and that he will accomplish exactly what he says he's going to accomplish. And, and all the naysayers in the world can't stop it. You can't make God go away by just saying, well, I'm just going to pretend he doesn't exist anymore. You can make another human being go away, let alone the, the king of the universe. You can't, you can't make his truth become untrue. We, we have the ultimate weapon. We, we don't need to be fretful. We know that God is going to do what he's promised he's going to do, and we know that we are safe in him. So we want to start there when we're we're feeling the anxiety, when we're feeling that kind of pressure, and maybe we're going through some kind of persecution, and we, we live kind of in a bubble where we don't have a lot of that where we live right now. Most believers in our world are not in that situation, but, but as we face the difficulty, let it turn our hearts to the Lord. The comforting reality of Christ's return should dominate our thinking. Second, look at the deceptive cause of anxiety. Verse 2. They've urged these believers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, 
to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Now, notice how Paul describes what's happening to the Thessalonian believers internally, quickly shaken in mind, alarmed. And then he refers to the potential for their being deceived. Let no one deceive you in any way. So, you have this shaken, alarmed, deception. Uh, These are not the marks of genuine doctrine. What is causing this disturbance? Well, by a spirit, a spoken word, a letter seeming to be from us. And these descriptions reveal that the teaching that had entered this community of believers was passing itself off as reliable apostolic doctrine from the Lord. Sometimes false teaching tries to calm people with peaceful lies when they need to be alarmed about their sin and their need for repentance, as in the days of Jeremiah, when people are saying, peace, peace, and there is no peace. But, but other times, and among the people of God, false teaching often creates disturbance that definitely creates division, fretful fear, anxiety, uh, as it is done here in the church at Thessalonica. Correct doctrine tends to settle and establish our hearts in the truth. False teaching is by its nature unsettling. Psalm 119, 165 came to my mind. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And the context there in Psalm 119 mentions that the psalmist is experiencing persecution from powerful people around him. But the Word of God makes his heart steady. How often God comes to his people with the words, fear not, don't be afraid, take courage. And then he gives us reason for that. Well, what was the lie that was disrupting the peace of the believers in Thessalonica? Paul says it this way, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, the day of the Lord is not just one day, but the time when the Lord brings judgment on His enemies and vindicates His people. Throughout history, the prophets refer to various times of such judgment from the Lord, like in Isaiah 13 or Joel 2, warning that the day of the Lord is near. And and these minor judgments through history are like small doses of the ultimate day of the Lord that will come at the end of the age. These prophecies appear to have both immediate and distant fulfillment in view, but it's a reminder that that we're all going to be held accountable to God, that the Lord will, will make things right, that the Lord will bring judgment against His enemies and will vindicate His people. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord includes the tribulation period and the pouring out of God's wrath at the end of the age. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and our brother Joel taught on this, I think it was last summer or so, um, maybe it's, I can't remember the date, I'm sorry, whenever he talked on 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul taught them that the day of the Lord would come like a thief in the night and bring inescapable sudden destruction. But as children of the light, Paul continued, You're not unaware of the coming of the day of the Lord like those who are in darkness, living life as if you're asleep or drunk. God has not destined you for wrath, but has given you faith, love, and the hope of salvation. And so armed, we're to be busy encouraging one another and building one another up. 
That's basically a summary of those first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 5. But the false teachers were claiming that the day of the Lord was already breaking upon them. Times were tough, to be sure. But Paul wanted them to know that they were not suffering through the day of the Lord. That final period was yet future. And what they were dealing with was the suffering that believers face in a world hostile to God. They were still safe. And when you read what the Apostle John writes later on in the book of Revelation about the outpouring of the wrath of God on the earth during the day of the Lord, well, what they were encountering was small by comparison. When you have a whole third of the earth that dies and the the kinds of amazing things that that happen, we've not seen anything like it. So you don't have to look far to see this kind of false teaching today. In fact, just this year, somebody handed me a book uh, asking what I thought about it, and the guy was trying to prove that Chernobyl incident was wormwood, the star wormwood falling to the earth and, and creating. Well, no, that's just not possible because that happens during the period of the day of the Lord, and, and things are, are not going to be out of order. So, a lot of times you'll have people that, you know, they find some secret code in the Bible, or they, you know, they, they by arranging things in a certain way, maybe with numbers or whatever, they say, oh, we're actually, you know, already living in this. No. No. There are things that have to happen that God has said will happen, and they will happen in order. Throughout history, People have feared that the end of the world has come or that a particular world leader is the predicted Antichrist. That's happened over and over and over again. And why is that? Well, because um, these world leaders often have the character of that ultimate coming Antichrist. But it's important to keep in mind what we learn in this passage uh, this morning. Um, Beware of of those books and teachings where somebody's got some kind of, of secret... Uh, you know, I've discovered this, nobody else has figured this out yet, and, and tries to pull together stuff that actually doesn't belong together. Uh, and and note, note anything that tends to unsettle or tend to say, well, wait a minute, that seems to contradict. Uh, watch out for that kind of thing. So what teaching have you come across that claims to be biblical but turns out to be distorted and disturbing? If your heart is responding to so-called Bible teaching with fear and anxiety about end-time events, it may be that the teaching is not as biblical as it claims to be. Now, you know, that said, I realize that if you've been mistaught and you are taught something biblical, that can be disturbing as well. And, and so how do you know the difference? Well, go to the book, to the law and to the testimony. See if what is being taught actually matches the book. If it doesn't match, it, match the book, or if they're doing weird things with it, twisting it around, and, you know, if you hold this upside down or play it, you know, back mask it or something, play it backwards, it says something. That's silly stuff, okay? And, and what, I want you to think about this as well, because we're all... It's easy for us to get caught up in this kind of thing. What tactics and resources and friends, because your brothers and sisters in Christ and your pastors and mentors are also resources for you, can help you make sure you're not being deceived in any way by false teaching. 
You know, be, be very careful about becoming men followers. Be very careful about getting all heated up about one particular topic, you know, and, and just, just running that down wherever you find it. Be very careful about that. You want to keep coming back to the Word. You want to keep relying on those that you can trust. And, and you, want to, you want to note when your heart is responding in a way that's not really consistent with the way a heart should respond to the Word of God. And, and watch out for that. Third, the divinely established timing of the day of the Lord helps us deal with end-time anxiety. For that day will not come, second part of verse 3, unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That day will not come. It cannot come. Why? Because God, the God of history, has established exactly when it will come and what events will lead to it. It cannot come before then. Things are not careening out of control. They are marching toward a predetermined conclusion. Everything will happen exactly as God has prescribed. Steady your heart with that reality. And if this is true of the great moments of history, it's certainly no less true of the course of your own life history. God is in control of that too. Steady your heart with the fact that he's actually running the show. He's, he's the author. He knows you. He's got you. It's not been an uncommon thing to hear brothers and sisters in Christ express fretfulness and fear about the coming of the Antichrist or about events and trends that seem to be preparing the way for him. Look, he's coming. He's coming. That, how do you know he's coming? Because God said he's coming. So why would that worry you? If you believe what God has said, why would that worry you? But he's not going to come one day sooner than God has determined, and not one day later. Furthermore, we're not to fear the coming of Antichrist. We're to look for the coming of Christ, and, and the Antichrist is doomed from the start because he's the son of destruction. The revelation of the man of lawlessness is a prelude to the glorious return of Christ. So, before the day of the Lord comes, there must first come what, call, call, what Paul calls the rebellion, the apostasy, the falling away. The definite article, the, points to an ultimate, culminating falling away. A time when those who claim to follow Jesus fall away from Him in a widespread, willful rebellion. Now, apostasy plagued Israel throughout the Old Testament history, falling away. It has plagued the church from the New Testament era to this day. And much of the shame that's heaped on the church is actually the result of those who claim to be Christians but are living like anything but Christian. The problem is often that they are Christian in name only. Their lives do not display the gospel. We're not only to proclaim the gospel, we're to display it. Our lives are to match up, give credibility to our words. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If our lives are characterized by corruption, we have no credible good news to share with anybody. What many are turning away from 
is a fraudulent version of Christianity. Many are turning away from the real thing, but oftentimes when you listen to their stories, they got a dose of fake Christianity, of corrupt Christianity, and what they need is exposure to the real thing. Now, we've seen enough defections and deconstructions to sense that, that these are but a sampling and a prelude of a far greater tragedy, a far greater apostasy yet to come. There's coming a day that will dwarf all the previous rebellions, the apostasy of all apostasies. And the second thing that Paul mentions must show up before the day of the Lord is not a thing but a person, the man of lawlessness. He is the personal embodiment of rebellion against God's law, God's truth. And he's also called the son of destruction. Those two go together. That is, he is doomed to eternal destruction from the start, just as Judas the traitor was. He cannot succeed in his rebellion. So don't let the rebellion frighten you. Though it will be worldwide, and though he will be the most powerful rebel against God, leading the world that the world has ever seen. In other words, the worst that Satan can muster, and we're going to look at this more next week with the rise and fall of this individual, the worst that Satan can muster through those who turn away from the gospel and the most powerful leader who ever rebels against God will not succeed. He's doomed. He's a son of destruction. Paul goes on to describe this individual in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So he opposes God, every so-called God or object of worship. He exalts himself above them all. He goes so far as to take his seat in the temple of God, possibly a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And I know that sometimes you say, well, that's impossible. You don't know that that's impossible. Okay? It's possible at the very least that it describes as putting himself forward in the apostate church as God. The point is, it's a place of worship, and he claims to be the one who ought to be worshipped. He essentially claims to be what Jesus is, God in the flesh. He proclaims himself to be God. He's against God, and he puts himself in the place of God. And that, by the way, Antichrist means both being against Christ and putting yourself in the place of Christ. John the Apostle declares that the Antichrist is coming. And there are already, but he says, there are already many Antichrists, even in the first century, because the spirit of Antichrist was already at work in the world. We studied that together when we were going through uh, John's epistles. This person denies, if we deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, or we deny the Father and the Son, or that Jesus is the Messiah, it marks us as an Antichrist. But there is yet to come the Antichrist. And the apostles are careful to make that distinction. Paul uses language here, like that of Daniel 7, describing the boastful little horn of the final beast of world empires, who is destroyed at the end of the age when the Son of Man comes with the Ancient of Days to judge the world. Daniel 8 talks about him as one who rises up against the prince of princes, but is broken, but not by human hand. 
Or Daniel 11 speaks of him as a willful king who will magnify himself above all. And, and Daniel talks of a time of trouble like there's never been before, followed by the resurrection in time. Jesus refers to these events as well in the Olivet Discourse, so it wasn't fulfilled during the time between the Testaments. He warns that of the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. Now, during the intertestamental period, there was a wicked king named Antiochus Epiphanes who profaned the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar. He served as a forerunner of this ultimate man of lawlessness. You may recall, if you remember your history, the Maccabees fought against him. And in fact, to this day, Hanukkah celebrates when the temple was cleansed and the sacrifices resumed. But Daniel also points to a later abomination, and Jesus talks about that abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, and of a tribulation, a great tribulation, worse than anything in history before or after, followed immediately by the coming of the Son of Man in glory. This is what this text is talking about. John describes similar events in Revelation 13 and 17 of a final kingdom pictured as a beast from the sea, empowered by Satan the dragon, uttering blasphemies against God, and through the power of a second beast that does miracles, calling on the world to worship the first beast. Well, Paul says in verse 5, do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things. And isn't that interesting? Sometimes, you know, we're a little bit gun shy about all the prophetic stuff because we've seen it maybe abused. But Paul was not gun-shy about it. He had taught them about this and was telling them about this. This was part of his ongoing conversation with them. And it teaches us that the corrective to deceptive teaching is apostolic instruction, and it still is. Keep going back to the Word. People go off course when they add other teaching to what God has revealed through the prophets and apostles, or change it, or twist it, to mean what it did not mean when it was given. So-called progressive Christianity, and the name itself is a lie, talks about changing how truth changes, and talks about de deconstructing what the apostles taught in favor of so-called new truth that God is revealing through current history and ideas. That kind of teaching is damning. It sets you adrift. And we've watched that happen to our own people. Paul had been careful to teach the truth to these brothers and sisters in Christ. And they needed to hold on to that truth that he had taught them in the beginning. And not let some new twist on doctrine push them off course. So that brings us back to really a safeguard for us. And there's more to be said about this topic that we will, Lord willing, next week. But what patterns have you established in your daily life to keep your mind focused on what God's Word teaches to protect you from the falsehoods of both tradition and trend? You know, one of the best things you could do for, for this year is to make sure you figure out a way to be in the Word every day. You figure out a way to be soaking your mind and your heart in what God says. Go to the Word before you go to the news feed, and you'll be far better off. 
So that leads to a second question. When is your time in the Scriptures each day so that you can be meditating on them through, throughout the day and night? Like Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man, the happy man. He meditates on God's law day and night. Well, how are you going to do that if you never put your eyes on it, if you, if you never rehearse it, if you never listen to it? You've got, you've got to somehow make this part of your life. And then regarding this man of lawlessness, how can knowing that the ultimate man of lawlessness who opposes God is coming but is doomed to destruction from the start give you steady courage in the face of the rebellions against God that you see today? That's worthy of our meditation. Because we, we see lots of rebellions against God at every level, and it's very easy for that to, to that's, it's upsetting to us, okay? How can you keep in mind when you see those things that those efforts are doomed from the start? They will not prevail. Jesus wins. And so do those who belong to him. Jesus wins. Paul is going to continue teaching us about the rise and fall of this man of lawlessness. But let what he's taught us in these first five verses help us battle the all-too-common anxiety that people experience and express regarding the end times. Don't you be part of the fretful crowd. Keep in mind the comforting reality of Christ's coming deceptive cause or causes of anxiety, and the divinely established timing of the day of the Lord. And you'll be okay because you belong to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And um, Lord, sometimes passages like this we kind of steer away from because there are parts of it that we may not understand. But Lord, help us lay hold on what we do understand. And Lord, even now as we think about this passage, I want to pause for a moment just to give my brothers and sisters and those in the room today time to reflect on what your word has said and to think through what might need to change in their thinking or practice to bring it in line with what Paul has taught us. So we're going to take a moment for that silently, and then I'll finish closing in prayer. God, we confess that there really are myriad things that tend to unsettle us to cause us to fret or to worry. And this is one category of things that does that. We are sheep and we're easily led astray. And so God, I pray that since Christ is our good shepherd and great shepherd, that we would follow him. We are so grateful that no one can pluck us out of his hand out of the Father's hand, that we are His, that we know His voice, and we follow Him. So God, I pray that this week, 
his voice will be echoing in our minds as we give attention to the word that he has revealed, to the truth that he's revealed, to the love that he has expressed, pouring out his very lifeblood and then rising again and interceding for us and coming back all to rescue us who don't deserve it, but nonetheless have this great gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May he be praised, not only on our lips, but in our lives. For it's in Christ.